0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Ah, here we are, the last week of the year, known for leftover pie with only the filling left because somebody dug out and ate all the crust. I mean, I would never do that. (laughs) I would, I totally do that. Tinsel ground into the carpet, those best of year-end lists. You know where I'm going with all of this. First of all, as we prepare to ring in the new year, I wanted to actually take the time to tell you guys how grateful I am for each and every one of you. This podcast is totally one of my favorite things I've ever launched, and I can't believe we've surpassed one million downloads this year. I mean, I'm still on cloud nine about that. I've interviewed so many remarkable guests over the past 12 months, and I thought, you know what, as we say goodbye to 2022, let's pick some of the best advice and the most riveting snippets from some of my favorite episodes this year for a very special best of edition of Everyone Talks to Liz. So first up, we learned from a kid named Austin Russell that age is just a number And college is not a must when you're working to become a billionaire. Austin applied for his first patent when he was only 12 years old. And then, after attending Stanford for a mere six months, he was approached by billionaire venture capitalist Peter Thiel, who gave him $100,000 to drop out of college and start his self-driving tech company, Luminar. I caught up with Austin at CES in Vegas to hear his incredible story. Let's talk about you as a senior in high school opening your acceptance letter to Stanford.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, hey, um, you know, I, and, and that, was, that was a good starting point. I'd say that, and even before then, it all starts with the drive of, of knowing the hows and whys and, and what you want to do. And this is where I've always had a very focused mission about wanting to to build new things, to create new things. And at the same time, I mean, even going back uh, from the beginning from the different software projects hardware projects that I worked on you know applied for my first patent when I was like around 12, 13 to what? Really get things going so, I'm
0: sorry you applied for a patent at age 12 uh, did yeah. you get it?
1: Uh, yes I did what was it for? it was actually for a water recycling system interestingly enough so it was, it was for residential commercial use to, it's funny it's not related to any of the stuff that we're doing now but I uh, just had a bunch of really interesting ideas about how to be able to improve the world and wanted to be able to go, go in on it um that was really before I took the opportunity to actually start commercializing some of these things, but um, eventually got just into the world of, of lasers and optics and all that other stuff. And that's where I ended up um, as I spent more time, so to say, talk about from a high school standpoint, spent as much or more time actually in parallel at this place called the Beckman Laser Institute um, for the latter couple of years there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it wasn't totally out of the blue when, you know, got recruited up by Stanford, you know, had... Your question there uh, to be able to go up to the Bay Area um, it didn't last very long though it was only about six months before you knew that wanted to go all in full time on uh, specifically the, the company Luminar. Um, there was actually a guy Peter Teal uh, that con- convinced and uh, his old program that convinced me to really go all in on my company. It was that I mean, the tagline is uh, you know give uh, students one hundred thousand dollars to drop out of school or do whatever. The reality is is that. Uh, you have to have an insane amount of drive to want to do these things in any scenario. Which, but it, but it's great to have you know great sponsors and networks and other stuff like that. So,
0: your parents said what when you said, "Mom, Dad, um, I, I'm dropping out of Stanford."
1: <laughs> you know, in some ways it's not surprising. In some other ways, it's like I, I think in in every uh, in every parent's mind, it's always like red flags when you take a, a non-traditional route or path, but they've actually been very, very supportive and accommodating and, uh, hey, I, I actually did what I said I was going to do, so, you know, it, it, it worked out okay. You saved them a lot of money. <laughs> I saved
0: a lot of money. <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly, Did
0: Stanford try and keep you?
1: Um, yeah, uh, Yeah. I mean, they all kind of do. I mean, I think the reality is, though, is that uh, it, it, the whole system around academia is not particularly designed to build and foster entrepreneurial ventures or things like this. I mean Stanford probably more so than a lot of different systems, but on a relative basis it's a very, very low bar. And and that's the thing that I, I think there is a big opportunity to be able to have some level of reform when it comes to education, when it comes to these things, to be able to incentivize more of this. Obviously it does work a little bit against, you know, the whole notion of colleges getting paid and everything around, you know, they do as you well, we'll, we'll save, save some uh, <laughs> save some dollars, but uh, at the at the end of the day, the reality is is that uh, I think that there's a ton of great ideas out there, and you know, really smart people that have opportunities to implement it. When the time is right, that's where you know you have to go all in.
0: Were you scared to make the jump and and put your future a in your own hands and that of Peter Thiel, the big venture capitalist, who says for really bright people you quit. Quit school and I'll give you a hundred grand to help start your really gunning the engine on your company.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's a good question. And, and, uh, to be totally honest, I, I wasn't scared at all. It, it, it was actually, it's funny. It was actually the opposite. Uh, I was more scared than anything of not always taking the jump and just being super boring for the rest of my life. Okay. So, you so you're talking,
0: you're talking to an audience that Many of whom have hopes and dreams yeah. and ideas. But what holds back 99% of the world is fear. Fear yeah. that you're not going to have something to fall back on. Fear of a plan B that disappears or a steady paycheck. Yeah. What do you say to people like that?
1: You know, it, it's a fair question. And the reality is that that fear is there, you know, from an innate reason of. People tend to want to be more conservative around bigger decisions. We're just not taking that jump. We just always want to keep pushing it off and pushing it off and pushing it off and then say, you know, maybe we'll get to it one day and then years go by and then it never happens. And that's the thing is that, you know, you really just have to be able to take that step forward and take that leap if you want to be able to make stuff happen. Now, obviously, you know, don't do it willy nilly. These are big decisions around things, but do it for the right reason. Yeah. Um, but more than anything, also just don't do it because other people tell you to do something or don't do it because like do it because in terms of what actually feels right to you, but informed in a logical way and capacity. And, and that's the thing is that, um, you know, I mean, what well, there's that classic saying of, you know, if you, if you do what you're passionate about, you never work a day in your life, you know whatever it is. But, and I think that is true in, right. a, in a lot of ways. Well,
0: Warren way Buffett says you should want to tap dance to work. You love what you do so much.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it doesn't always feel like that every day, but you know, on the on the, on the uh, but that's the grunt. That's the grunt. And then when you take a step back and you realize what you've been able to do and just what you really pulled off, mm-hmm. that's where you're tap dancing like no tomorrow.
0: It's worth fighting for as yeah. long as you can say this is worth. Yeah, a little bit of pain and and fear and fright. Listen, failure too. Can you describe? Pretend you're talking to a 12 year old because sometimes I feel like one. <laughs> lidar in a snapshot.
1: Yeah. So, as you astutely pointed out, uh, lidar stands for light detection and ranging. Uh, good one. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> but, uh Now, now the question is, what does laser stand for?
0: Mm. Oh, Ooh. I used to know that. I know what SCUBA stands for. Yeah. <laughs> right? There go. Hey. Self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. I mean, I'm, I, I, this monkey has a few tricks, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but SCUBA, uh, sorry, laser is...
1: Uh, light amplification through stimulated emission of radiation. Okay, you got me there. There you go. But, uh, no, <laughs> I'm just messing. Um, no, but that's impressive. So, the point is, is that, so LIDAR, it basically uses lasers to send out pulses of light into the environment measuring how long it takes for that pulse to hit an object and come back. And because we know the speed of light and with really, really fast timing circuits and and, and sensitive receivers and everything that goes into it, we can tell how far away something is by doing this and then doing this millions of times, repeatedly very, very quickly. And that's where it takes an incredible amount of specialized components and equipment and everything to be able to make all of this work. But that's exactly what we've done. Build all these different components from the ground up to be able to make this work to meet these very stringent performance requirements, safety requirements, and and not much less do so in something that doesn't cost $100,000 or a $1 million, but, you know, hundreds of dollars so that it can go on every vehicle, ultimately. And and that's the... uh, that's the significance of actually what what, what we, it is and what
0: it is. Like. We were there with you on air when you went public, when the company became a publicly traded company, and that instantly made you the youngest self-made billionaire. To me, and now I feel like I've known you now, like not best friends or anything, but I mean we've talked a lot and we connect on on a very visceral level, uh, sorry, cerebral level. Mm. That's how cerebral I am. Uh, To me, you seem like the kind of person who's so busy working, you're not sitting there throwing your money around. But I do understand you've started a philanthropic fund of sorts. Tell me what you're doing with philanthropy.
1: Yeah, so I think that that's definitely uh, one aspect of what we're doing. It doesn't take away from anything from the day to day of everything I'm just grinding away in Luminar, but rather hopefully actually has some synergistic benefits. So uh, there, there's a couple things that we did just over the past uh, week over the Christmas break, um, which was one of it was uh, a uh, 70 million um, donation to the Florida Foundation. We're good with them, I'm a huge believer in uh, being able to help the local community holistically and. You know, with uh, Luminars headquarters uh, being officially in Orlando, uh, we also have, have locations in, in California, Silicon Valley as well, but uh, Orlando has been a particular focus. And, and by the way, the reason for that is, is that it turns out the highest concentration of these type of lidar engineers and specialized individuals out of anywhere in the world, which was that was part of the reason for the base. Maybe it seems counterintuitive, but there's actually a lot of defense industry, the Space Coast, Cape Canaveral, and all that. It's been a great source of talent. But uh, so, so that, that's, we really leverage that to the full extent to be able to help build Luminar and help the local economy. But now, from a personal standpoint, uh, I, I look forward to being able to also help the local community. Good. And if you take a look at, it, it's kind of amazing to see, is that if you take a look at these other uh, other types of environments, like say in um, for, uh, the Silicon Valley or other types of environments in, in, in this world, mm-hmm. uh, other major metro areas. I mean, it's not uncommon to see tens, uh, like 10 or tens of billions of dollars of philanthropic dollars being uh, invested into the local community. When take, you can take a look at something like Orlando, it's very underinvested in the sense that you know, there's only been around, um, what, on, on the order of, I think it was 60, 70 million to date, for example, with mm-hmm. this uh, foundation, 80 million now over the past couple of decades. So when you, now it's time to, I think, start multiplying, and this gotcha. is hopefully going to be a big, a big hub for, uh, for the future.
0: We're going to be right back with more of my favorite interviews of 2022 right after this. Don't wait another moment to start your learning journey with Masterclass. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at Masterclass.com slash Liz. That's 15% off at Masterclass.com slash Liz. Masterclass.com slash Liz. Next, one of my favorites this year was my interview I did with the co-founders of The Comfy. It's that uber-soft blanket hoodie thing. What I loved about this one was that brothers Brian and Michael Special did not know how to sew or design anything, but became living proof that if you've got an idea, just dive in and figure out how to make it. And boy, are they making it. Michael, you're the one who sort of had that light bulb moment. Uh, which is ironic, considering you created this cold-weather product growing <laughs> up in Phoenix, Arizona? Really?
2: Two dudes from the desert. Two brothers from the desert. Can you believe that? Yeah, inventing this cold-weather product. But I'll just uh, go back real quick and tell you why, uh, how we invented this, how it came about. It was uh, in 2017, uh, February 2017, February 20th to be exact. And uh, I was going through a real tough time, going through a divorce. And uh, thankfully, my big brother had an extra room in his house. And uh, he takes me in like a good big brother does. So one morning I get up and I walk out in the living room and I look over and sitting on the couch is my brother's seven-year-old son, my nephew. His name is Saxon. And he's sitting there in one of my brother's old hoodies. So it just absolutely swallows him up. And he's got his knees pulled in. He's got his arms pulled into it. He's got the hood up. So he's just in there in a little cocoon, right? I just kind of catch eyes with him. He's actually in there playing one of his little video games. And we lock eyes and I say, Saxon, you just look so warm and comfy. You know, and I look over at my big bro and I'm like, man, bro, you think they make something like that for adults? Wouldn't everybody want to feel like that? You know, just that warm, cozy, secure feeling, right? And uh, there was a blanket laying over the back of the couch, and it had Sherpa lining on it and microfiber on the outside, and it was kind of looked at and put two to two together and like, man maybe we could make it out of something like that. And boom, light bulb moment, just
0: like that, the world's first truly wearable blanket was born at that and moment. Brian, at this moment, you're looking at Saxon I love that name, by the way little seven-year-old musher. <laughs> you know, my son, who's 17. Still pulls his tiny hoodie over his head and has his phone under it. Like, dude, what are you doing? And yet, I just look at it and think, okay, he's weird. You looked at it and thought it was an idea, Brian. What did you think when he? I spoke? didn't
3: think. I didn't think anything of it at the at the time. I mean, I, I guess looking back on it now, I'm very glad that my son uh, enjoyed going into my closet and stealing my clothes. Because uh, that seemed to work out pretty well for us, but yeah, he was just sitting there on the on the couch, and I was sitting next to him scrolling Twitter. And Michael, you know, uh, mentioned that. And right then, when he when he mentioned it, don't they make these? For, wouldn't it be great if they made these for adults? I mean, really, we did start grinding and and putting two and two together because it's like, wait a second, yeah, surely somebody does do something like that. But we thought there was something to the the wearable blanket thing. There had been the Snuggie in the past, but that's really. You know nothing even remotely similar to our product. Um, right. We wanted to make something that was that was better than that. Something that was a truly wearable blanket. Something that is enclosed all the way around and makes you feel like you're, you know, like you're a little kid, like you are wearing a blanket. And that's exactly what we set out to do. And
0: am um, I the only one who the snuggy thing didn't work for because my feet get burning hot? Like you don't want to be enclosed, like you can't breathe. And that's kind of the beauty of of what the comfy really is, right, Brian?
3: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The Snuggie, uh, you know, people like to sit, they, they do like to still compare us to the Snuggie, but the is like wearing a hospital gown backwards, right? I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's still open in the back. It's not something you can get off the couch and walk around with. Our whole thing was we wanted to have a wearable blanket that you could take your dog out for a walk, that you can cozy up on the couch and that you could do chores around the house, work in the kitchen, whatever the case may be, and that's proven out to be a, a pretty uh, successful idea because people talk about it all the time, how it's changed their lives and it makes their lives better. And where has this thing been my entire life? And we like to say that you put the, the comfy on, it's this gigantic, oversized, wearable blanket. People look at it, they, they just kind of laugh. Ha <laughs> ha This thing's hilarious. But it's, it's not a novelty. And you wear it for about five seconds, and you you stop laughing, and you go, wait a second, where has this thing been my entire life? This is the most comfortable thing I've ever had on my body. So you immediately go from the ha-ha moment to the aha moment, and that really is the magic ah,
0: of it. I see what you did there. And, and <laughs> the, the interesting thing, Michael, is that um, when you look at an idea and thinking, wait a minute, and then you Google and you realize there's nothing else out there, there's a big leap to go from that to Huh, let's get the fabric. Let's start stitching. <laughs> what Can I back up? I mean, were you guys little entrepreneurs growing up in Arizona?
2: Well, I actually, at the time, I was running a swimming pool business, service and repair business, my own. So I was, uh, I was definitely an entrepreneur. My brother was actually in uh, the TV uh, production side of things. So he was running his own, own business as well. So we were always entrepreneurs at heart. So uh, coming together, though, and doing it with your brother was absolutely huge. Being able to bounce things off each other, pick each other up when we're down, you know, the highs and lows for sure. That was a huge, huge part of this. And, uh, you know, we went from idea, that idea on February 20th of 2017, to in front of the sharks in six months. That's how fast it happened. So we like to move, ex- you know, very quickly, uh, but we are ignorant through the whole thing. You know, we we're being told no a lot, of, a lot of times, and we just keep pushing And just just keep moving forward. Isn't that uh, part of
0: it, though, um, that you're too ignorant to know that you can't overcome all of these issues that come with designing a piece of apparel? Let's start with that moment where you said, okay, let's try and make this thing. You guys have to, I don't know, do, do you go to the fabric store, Michael's, and pick out something and then start? I mean, did either of you sew?
2: Oh gosh. No, no. but the Absol- one, Absol- thing, one thing,
3: one yeah. thing we were good at, Michael was going on to Google and figuring this all out. I mean, you've got the, <laughs> yep. you've got the sum of human knowledge in your, in, in your hand, in your pocket, everyone does. So the barrier to entry for anything entrepreneurial is so much lower and, and there's not as much resistance as there might've been, you know, 20 years ago. So we simply went out and found a prototype maker, um, who did apparently kind of items. And lo and behold, there was one in Mesa, Arizona, about 30 minutes away from us. So we called him up, took some blankets down to him, told him what we wanted to do. Uh, he looked at us like we were completely nuts. Um, but then he got to work on it. And lo and behold, it t- pr- took probably, I don't know, six weeks to two months to get the final prototype. And it was it was really exactly uh, what we wanted. And we knew we had something to, to take to Shark Tank at that
0: point. Michael, that's not even
2: that long. No. It didn't, it really didn't take that long, you know, and that was us just uh, pushing it forward. It really helped finding that prototype maker in Phoenix. So we were able to meet with them, you know, on a, on a weekly basis for sure. But, you know, you mentioned Michael's, it was actually Joanne's that Brian and I were in together. Uh. Never been in a (laughs) Joanne's in our lives. And we're sitting there, you know, during the first few weeks of this and we're going through fabric and feeling it and act like we know what the hell we're doing and look at each other and just like, what the hell are we doing, man? (laughs) Like we don't, don't really know what we're doing. Let's just get the best fabric, softest fabric we can find, and, uh, you know, just try to use some common sense and take it into the prototype ma- maker, give him our ideas, no measurements, nothing whatsoever. And uh, he came back the first time, and it was kind of, uh, it, w- it was okay, the first one, for sure, not exactly what we wanted. Uh, we we uh, made some adjustments from there, and believe it or not, the second prototype is what you see today. You're that's kidding. How fa- that's how fast it happened.
0: I mean, were yep, you guys- Acting like, you know, Yves Saint Laurent, oh, I think we need a little cut on the bias here. I mean, you're just saying, dude, make the hoodie bigger.
2: Uh, Pretty much, you know, a lot actually did go into it, believe it or not, because once we once we had the idea and we knew what we wanted, I mean, even all the way down to like how large the uh, armholes were. So you could easily pull in your elbows. That was part of it. And that was all inspired by Saxon sitting on the couch with his arms pulled in. We wanted to go over the knees, so you know we ended up making them basically a 76 inch waist so you can just pull it over your knees pull your arms in the hood is ginormous as well and that was, that was all planned really when it came down to it you, we tr- we wanted to make the world's first truly wearable blanket this is not a sweatshirt you know you're actually wearing your blanket so that
0: was the idea we're not done yet we'll be back in a moment brian what what issues popped up once you had that second prototype that worked and you started, I would imagine, ordering product. You had to order more. You had to order more of the fabric. Then you came up with other ideas. What was the first wall you bumped into?
3: I think the first wall was how we were gonna how we we're gonna launch this thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we knew that we had a product that we, almost from day one, almost before we even had the prototype made. It's like this is something that go on Chartang. It's very visual. It's very we have a we have a good story to tell. Uh, we can come up with a pitch that'll that'll make us memorable. Um, and so, going through that process, which we began in May of 2017, so th- just over three months after we had the idea, and within a, a month of having the first prototype we were in denver auditioning for the uh, auditioning for shark tank and that process was a lot of nos every single step of the way and you just push through and you just persevere and you keep telling yourself why not us why can't we do this of course we can uh, and hope that you that you end up making it through ultimately
0: i totally love my comfy i mean I wrap myself in it and I watch my Cleveland Browns and I'm the happiest person. Okay, we're going to be right back with more of my favorite interviews of 2022 right after this. Okay, you guys know how much I love TikTok, right? Aside from spending hours scrolling through videos of manicurists fixing ingrown toenails, I mean, I do watch those. I love making stock market and finance videos for my At Red Fox Liz TikTok channel, which I hope you're following. But we found Kat Norton, a.k.a. Miss Excel, who during the COVID lockdowns started teaching Microsoft Excel lessons, shortcuts and tricks on the platform, which she shot, by the way, in her bedroom. So many people were eager to learn that she turned her side hustle into a full-time gig and is now making seven figures educating her followers. Here's how she did it. You know what I do love about your story? You took a skill you already had teaching Excel at what your nine to five consulting job and turned it into a career via TikTok. That's amazing.
4: Thank you. Yeah, it was something I was doing on the side of my day job. I was doing securitization reviews for banks during the day, but as my side hustle at my day job, I was also teaching Excel because it was something I was so passionate about and I realized the impact it could have on people's lives. So I was like, I got to get this out there.
0: Well, every transformative success story, Kat, begins with a little dissatisfaction or maybe a lot. You started your Miss Excel TikTok class, I I believe in what, June of 2020. But take me back to, let's say, March of 2020, which coincidentally was the start of the COVID lockdowns. What happened
4: and what were you thinking and feeling
0: about your regular job?
4: Absolutely. So March of 2020, I found myself back in my childhood bedroom in my parents' house. And I was really pondering my life. I was like, okay, I'm not lit up right now by my day job. I love teaching the Excel part, but what I was doing day-to-day was really not lighting me up. It wasn't a creative outlet for me. And I was like, I need to figure out what I'm meant to do on this planet. So I dove into inner work and really trying to figure out what lights me up. I was meditating. I was going through subconscious thought patterns I had that were kind of keeping me playing small, locking me in place and started challenging those ideas. Like, why am I hiding in the shadows? This why is so I
0: California, Kat. I'm from California. This <laughs> is what people in like L.A. do and, and
4: Brentwood and Palisades. <laughs> inner yeah. Inner work. It's really where my journey began, though, because if I did not do inner work on myself, there is zero shot I would have posted myself dancing on the Internet to hmm. a left function. I grew up with an anxiety disorder. I hated public speaking. I hated having any attention on me. And I really felt that that was not my path, though. I was like, I'm acting in this way because of conditioning, because of things that are not my own. Wow. So I really went in and did work on myself. And that for me was way more intensive a process than building the business. Once I got on the ground with the business, things started moving and grooving because I did the work on me first.
0: Well, when did you come up with the idea to venture onto TikTok?
4: So that was around June. I had cleared out a lot of the limits that I had, and I was on the phone with my friend. And she was like, what if you put the Excel tricks on TikTok? And I was like, TikTok, I'm 27. I can't make a TikTok. I have a corporate job, you know? And but at the same time, I had this vision when she said it of that Drake song, the Tuesday slide left foot up, right foot slide to the left and the right function with the Excel screen above my head. Now, mind you, I had no idea how to video edit. So I watched a YouTube video, taught myself, and was like, I'm just going to test this out. And I made my first video and was like, dang, this is actually really cool. And then I started putting out videos. And by my fourth video, it reached 100,000 views. And within a month, I ended up going viral on TikTok.
0: That is so crazy. And wh- hey, listen, I'm 58 and I'm on TikTok. So, you know, and we do FinTalk, financial TikToks, and we love it. My producer, Grace, and I just have so so much fun doing it. And it does allow you this, this ability to really express yourself, but also try and help a lot of people who either can't afford this kind of service or would never think to even look into something like this. So what were you hearing in your early TikTok postings that indicated to you, God, there's a really big market out here for people who have trouble understanding how to put good spreadsheets together?
4: Yeah. I mean, immediately I started getting so much positive feedback, people thanking me, people writing me messages, being like, whoa, this just saved me hours in my week. And at that point I was like, okay, I really want to make impact on this planet. This is my first shot at this. This is a way that I can create something global that can help people that I can't even see around the world with these different things and save them hours in the week and help them get promotions and raises at work because I walked that path. I, because of my Excel skills, was fast-tracked up to a manager role at work. I would get things done so quickly. I would step up. I felt more confident at work. And I've seen how having these Excel skills can get you to that point. So that's really why I was like, I need to get this out there.
0: Well, by your sixth video, that kind of triggered something. You got a phone call.
4: Yes. So by my sixth video the CEO of an IT company reached out to me and was like, hey, I love your teaching style. I'm looking to create G Suite training videos. So the Google version of everything I was doing. And I was like, okay, I'm down. So I formed an LLC, bought a green screen, a ring light. I moved my childhood bedroom furniture out of the way. I was like sleeping in a little corner and most of my room was all studio at that point. And after work every day, I would start recording these videos, selling them back to this guy. And at the same time, I kept putting out the Miss Excel content because it was helping so many people. Let me go to the LLC part. Let's explain to people why you ended up doing
0: that what you have to do if you decide to start your own business and how you even put together a billing process
4: yeah absolutely so first thing i did was call up my accountant and i had him help me set up the llc it was first i had to figure out a name and once i like came clear on the name for the llc then i went in and we created it i created a bank account for it and then for the billing process it was super simple i just i believe I used one of the Google templates at first that, that had one of like they had like little invoice templates. So I just like tweaked those and sent them over. And by then, once you have the LLC, the bank account, you really have a nice ecosystem for building a business and scaling it.
0: Are you guys listening to what she is saying? There are so many opportunities and so many services and websites that will just help you do this stuff for free. To start your own business. But, you know, the difference w- between a lot of people and Kat is she had that expertise of Excel, but it was her passion. So let's continue on this, this sort of path. You started to do these videos, and what did you decide to charge, and how did you come to that, that number, that figure?
4: I mean, I really backed into how much my hour is worth, you know, and at that time with my expertise in it and just like knowing the products and they agreed at the price. So I was doing like an hourly rate at that time. And then at that point too, I really started diving into what can I create of my own products, right? Like what can I build out instead of just doing more of a freelance thing? And that's where I came up with creating courses.
0: And explain to our listeners what that is.
4: Yeah. So for me, I've absolutely loved being a part of the course sales industry. It is incredibly easy to get into and very low cost. So my overhead for my business was like less than 500 bucks a month between all my subscriptions or my video editors and everything. And it really, for me, was a home for my creative outlet. So I sat down and built out the most cool, fun, creative Excel course I could possibly think of I video taped everything on my iPhone. So I would just like get more recent iPhones. And so I've mapped out everything myself, filmed a hundred training videos, video edited every video, and then popped them on my course platform, Thinkific, which is an incredible, easy one to use if you're just starting out. And within a few days, I had that linked up to my Stripe account, my business bank account. I had a whole ecosystem for selling courses. So it's way easier than you think to get into course sales. It's really not a lot of overhead. It's super user-friendly, especially the Thinkific platform, and it really can just exponentially grow from there.
0: Last but not least, my conversation with Dale Bruckner. This was easily one of our most popular podcasts this year. Dale is a veteran of several wars, and after serving, he started a company called Global Guardian, which helps corporations around the world anticipate, you know, like dangerous events. He predicted the Russia-Ukraine war 39 days before the first strike and then, using military tactics— helped extract his customers' employees as missiles began raining down. It was fascinating to hear how Dale pulled thousands of Americans working in Ukraine out safely. You know, Dale, just to get people up to speed, you predicted Russia's invasion of Ukraine well before it happened and began, what, to send warnings to your clients? Let's begin with what you started to see, how you analyzed the situation, and what you said in your warnings.
5: Yes, ma'am. So we did uh, about 39 days prior to the invasion. We started to look at that part of the world and specifically with Russia. Um, my COO and a few of my other senior executives here at the, at the, the firm um, are ex-CIA. Uh, my COO had done two tours in Moscow, and we had also were connected with a series of other ex-CIA agents that had served in that part of the world. And we started to talk about probabilities. On day 31, prior to the invasion, we sent out a 57 slide PowerPoint slideshow to our largest clients that we knew had infrastructure and people and operations in the region. And we basically said the following, there is a 65% chance that Russia will strike Ukraine in some form or fashion. Hmm. That could be ground, that could be air, that could be from the sea. Uh, We stated there is a 25% chance that Russia will attempt to invade the country uh, at at, at scale and try and take the whole country. And there is a 10% chance that we'll find a a diplomatic off-ramp prior to have some kind of physical or kinetic war, if you will, or strike. And that's how it started. And then we led up from day 31. We sent out over 100 alerts to our client base, basic to, to put it in very layman's terms, begging them to take this serious and mm-hmm. understand that it felt almost imminent. And then, of course, it
3: started.
0: So I need to know, I'm sure some took you seriously, but the ones who yeah. didn't, so I could yes. just hear some of these clients saying, "Brah, you you want the business? I get it, but we don't see yeah. anything really happening." I mean, sure, satellite photos, because we yeah. on Fox Business were showing the satellite photos of troops amassing on the border, yep. and yep. Putin's on the television saying, "Oh, I'm not going to do anything." And we even had the head of Russia's second largest bank, Andrei Kostin, he's known as Putin's banker, come on the show and make a bet with me that <laughs> Russia would never. Never invade Ukraine. He said this, what, a couple of weeks before it happened. Uh, So tell me about the people who kind of push back on your warnings.
5: Yeah. So our core client base is the Fortune 1000. These are brands you would recognize. They're household names in addition to families. And what I would tell you is I'd say 30 percent took us seriously and started to collect key information, phone numbers, emails, addresses, How many people are in the family? Do they have satellite devices? Are they prepared? So on and so forth. And then frankly, about the other 70%, to your point, dismissed us. And what I would tell you is this is absolutely the standard response, Okay. whether it's the hurricanes heading towards the Caribbean in the 2017, where there's two back-to-back hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, or it's the Turkey coup, the Paris attacks, the Myanmar attacks, uh, so on and so forth. In all of these scenarios, we kind of live this day to day where I think corporate America. And this is what's really hard to understand is we've now been as a nation in the longest conflict in the history of our nation. And you have CEOs in the Fortune 500, Fortune 100 that openly dismiss this. Um and it's hard to understand that mentality mm. and then of course understanding Russia and the mentality of Russia is what really drove us to say this is serious Putin's you know getting older he's you know his legacy if you will is getting to the end and frankly Ukraine at the end of the day is the la- it's it's a red line for him. It's the last country that he could influence before they might potentially become a nato country so Mm. for all those reasons that's why we predicted what we predicted and now we're in the position we're in
0: let's fast forward to the start of the war clarify to our listeners when you got that first call oh my god we should have listened to you dale now we're stuck help us get out of ukraine fast
5: yeah so we did get those calls of course in the first 24 to 48 hours We also sent, you know, emails and started calling our large clients where we knew they had infrastructure and people. And of course, in some cases, some of our biggest firms in the Fortune 500 took six to eight days to get back to us with lists and people and status. And what I tell everyone is, and this is a very militaristic statement, it might not be intuitive, but at the beginning of every one of these crises, the statement is speed is your security, meaning mm-hmm. the faster you move before, you know, if you think about it, the Russians were nowhere near Kiev. They were barely uh, outside of Crimea in the south. They're barely outside moving towards the west out of Donbass in the east. So that speed, the ability to move in the first call at five to six days is when it's the safest movement. You have the most freedom of maneuver. Bridges aren't being blown out. There aren't checkpoints yet. That speed is your security. You have freedom of maneuver. You can really get a lot done quickly. By about day seven or eight, it starts to slow down because now you have checkpoints, infrastructure's being bombed, they're firing missiles off the sea, and this starts to complicate things. So ultimately, we did have seven clients within the first 24 hours call and say, go. Mm -hmm. And the ones, again, that had prepared and given us the documentation, we immediately started reaching out, organizing and making decisions based on the threat. Do we go right to their address and pick them up or are we going to consolidate several hundred people by city? typically in churches and parks and things like that. So it did start very quickly.
0: Okay, you you just referenced, you know, our military way of thinking. Okay, I want to let our listeners know your background. You're a decorated combat commander, multiple tours and classified operations in Iraq, Afghanistan, Colombia, Haiti, Cuba. You served in the U.S. Army Infantry for nine years, military intelligence. I mean, you are the real deal. Special Forces Green Beret. I'm listening to you. Okay, so let's just get to that point where the window did start to constrict beyond the six days. Yeah. Yeah. What has been one of your most dangerous extractions so far in Ukraine?
5: And we've we've published this and I could send you a sanitized version of what we call a mission brief. Mm -hmm. So um, we've sent this out pretty pretty widely to our client base, especially those that still had not moved quickly. We had um, three corporate clients that were north of Kiev. So if you remember, the Russians came from Belarus north of the capital and moved south. So bottom line is we had clients that were stuck behind Russian lines and they were very senior. They were very important to the firm. They were what we would call a high value target, if you will, Hmm. to us so we had made the decision that this was one of the scenarios where we were willing to take extreme risk so we went in with uh an armored vehicle two soft vehicles we did reconnaissance just outside the city for almost two days we noted we started to see the pattern of the russian strikes of artillery and missile strikes meaning we could see three, four hours of just pounding and then a lull. Three, four hours of pounding and then uh, a lull. Okay. So what we determined was, okay, once it gets to daylight, when we get to that next lull, that's when we're going to go in. So we had, had executed what you call an offset, meaning you're offset right outside the city by three or four miles. So we're not getting bombed. We're watching, listening and watching you know, traffic going in and out. And then, of course, the bombing. At that point, we did go in, successfully get to the executives. We did a quick health and welfare check with our doctors. We put them in the armored vehicle. Then we put a reconnaissance vehicle in front to deal with anything that we might run into. And then a a vehicle in the back of them. Mm. And we successfully got them out. That entire mission set from planning to the reconnaissance to the execution was almost four days. And we ended up exfilling them to the southwest of the city and then took them to the Polish border. And it was, you know, two days of of just being outside the the bombing zone, if you will.
0: Those are just some of the incredible conversations we've had this year. To listen to the full interviews, go to foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to thank all of you again I know I thank you a lot, but I need to do it over and over for tuning in every week to Everyone Talks to Liz. You have no idea how much your support means to me, and I am truly grateful for each and every one of you. If you'd like to hear even more from me, make sure to tune in to Fox Business for The and Countdown, 3 p.m. Eastern weekdays. In the meantime, please do me a favor. Stay healthy, safe, and if possible, calm during the holidays, okay? We've got another amazing year of podcast guests ahead of us. You have no idea how excited I am about some of the people we've already booked. So make sure to tune in. We'll see you in 2023. Want to listen ad-free? You can do it with a Fox News Podcasts Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And then Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.